Tonight, one of Trudeau's Syrian migrants is charged with the murder of a BC girl. But look what the CBC says. It's September 12th and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon Thank consumer you. I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. It's a horrific crime. A beautiful 13-year-old girl named Marissa Shen was found murdered in a park in Burnaby, British Columbia, just across from her family home. Her parents reported her missing late that night and her body was found the next day. This was back in July of 2017. The police investigation was massive, truly an enormous undertaking. Police watched more than a thousand hours of video footage. They identified two thousand persons of interest. They interviewed 600 people. I've literally never heard of a larger police investigation in my life. Have you? And they charged Ibrahim Ali, 28 years old, with first-degree murder. Now, I should tell you, that's a different Ibrahim Ali than the 27-year-old gang member who was convicted of killing another beautiful young girl named Emily Sheen, a couple of years ago in the greater Vancouver area. By the way, the 27-year-old Ibrahim Ali, who migrated to Vancouver from Turkey, he was sentenced to just four and a half years for that killing. Um, that's what the CBC headline says, but, but that's sort of fake news because he was given credit for almost half a year for time served, so he's, he's out of jail already. Oh, and I didn't mention he had been sentenced just a few years before that for participating in a home invasion robbery. He got a sentence for that, too, but because we live in Trudeau's Canada, he was let out early for that, too. And then, of course, he went on to kill while he was let out early. So that's the Ibrahim Ali who came from Turkey to kill in Vancouver. But the news this week is about the Ibrahim Ali who came from Syria to kill in Vancouver, at least if the police accusation is upheld by a court. But Ibrahim Ali, this week's accused killer, he's not just from Syria. He was recruited and brought to Canada from Syria as one of Trudeau's Syrian refugees. In fact, he arrived in Canada only a few months before he allegedly murdered Marissa Shen. Now stop right there. Of course, Ibrahim Ali is not truly a Syrian refugee. As you know, Canada actually didn't take refugees from Syria. We, we took them from three neighboring countries, Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan. So the people we took were no longer in jeopardy. They were no longer at, at high risk or any risk, actually. They no longer met the UN definition of a refugee because refugees must make a refugee application in the first safe country they move to. They can't shop around. And as you may know, most of the people taken by Canada already lived in apartments, had jobs. They were doing well enough in Beirut or Amman until Justin Trudeau positively recruited them, brought them here as part of his campaign political photo op. Trudeau literally recruited this alleged murderer. But the second thing is why? Trudeau promised that he would bring in no single military-aged Muslim men from Syria. He said that. He said only families, as in people who meet our Canadian norms of refugees, uh, women and children, or the men at least have to be 
leading families. This image of a young military-aged Muslim men by the thousand marching across Europe towards Germany, yeah, no, no one really thinks they're genuine refugees. At best, they're economic migrants shopping around for the most generous welfare system. Of course, they're leaving Turkey for Germany. At worst, some of them are terrorists sneaking in. So, so many of Europe's recent terrorist attacks have, in fact, been perpetrated by people coming into Europe claiming to be refugees. Trudeau promised he wouldn't do that. He promised no single men. But he did. This 28-year-old single man named Ibrahim Ali was allowed to come to Canada from the murder and rape culture of Syria. He came to Canada, excuse me. The, the, he brought with him, though, if the allegations by police are true, the terrorist culture, the civil war culture, and, and he was a single male, no family. So he, he was allowed to come in. Why? Because one of his siblings came too. So Trudeau lied to you. I mean, a family is a nuclear family. Your husband, wife, kids. Uh, an adult brother isn't part of the family, he can't tag along, but Trudeau let him. And now Ibrahim Ali is accused of murder. That's on Trudeau's hands. How many more single military-aged Muslim migrants sneaked into Canada from violent Syria because Trudeau lied about no single military-aged men? We don't know, and our media is incurious at best. Not incurious, they're, they're on the side of the accused murderer. Look at the CBC headline. Man charged with murder of Marissa Shen, 13, had no criminal record and was new to Canada. He had no criminal record in Canada. He was only here a few months. Do we know what his criminal record was back, back in Syria? Do, do you think there are records in that blown up country? Do, do you think there are reliable police databases? Do you, do you think there actually are police governing Syria with the rule of law. And of course, Ali didn't come here from Syria. Who knows anything about him? Certainly not our own government. They only knew that they wanted 50,000 migrants brought here within a month or two to show how woke they are. But let's accept that he had no criminal record. Look, look at this headline also on the CBC. Look at this one. Tragedy shakes communities that help bring murder suspect to Canada. Oh, so, so it's just a tragedy. A 13-year-old girl is murdered. What, a tragedy? No, a tragedy is an earthquake or something that's sad, but, but not morally evil. It's tragic to get cancer. A murder, first-degree murder, of course it has tragic elements. A young girl's life is cut short, but that part's tragic. But the cause of the tragedy is pure evil, a crime, the capital crime, a murder. But the CBC is spinning this. I mean, consider the entire article. It's about the real victims here, the communities who brought this Syrian migrant to Canada. They're really the ones suffering the most. Forget about the dead 13-year-old girl and her grieving family. This is really about the accused Syrian killer and the poor, poor immigration industry that's embarrassed now. I tweeted about that grotesque CBC headline, and to my surprise, they later changed it. I guess they have a drop of shame left in them, but not the local Burnaby newspaper. They changed their headline the opposite way. At first, they reported the actual news. Here's their first headline, breaking Syrian refugee charged with murder of 13-year-old Marissa Shen. That's the truth, right? But then they changed it. They changed it without explanation or an editor's note. Here's what it looks like now. It says, breaking 28-year-old man charged with murder of Marissa Shen. Why did they make that change? Why did they take out the fact that he was a Syrian migrant? 
Isn't that an interesting fact? I mean, a foreigner, a non-citizen, someone Trudeau swore would be safe if he brought him here, someone Trudeau actually said wouldn't even be allowed in, a single military-aged Muslim man from Syria, he's charged with murder months after he set foot here, a Syrian migrant. Why was that considered newsworthy for a moment, but then not the next moment? Who told that newspaper to change that headline? And who told them to delete all the reader comments too? The CBC State Broadcaster was just as creepy. Back to their story. Look at this sub-headline. This is, again, the headline that they later changed when I tweeted about it. But the sub-headline says, Police caution against tarnishing community whose Canadian story has largely been one of hard work and success. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Someone was just arrested for murder, and police are cautioning about tarnishing a story about a community? Yeah. Hasn't the accused murderer done enough tarnishing of his own community? Should the police be worried about, you know, policing? There's a lot of Ibrahim Ali's running around Vancouver these days getting into tangles with the law. Um, I think they're tarnishing anything that's tarnished. Um, isn't the community that needs our support right now, you know, mums and dads with kids? Uh, Marissa Shen is Chinese. I, I don't know if this was an anti-Chinese hate crime. I'm guessing it was not. But why doesn't that community get a shout out from the police? Why don't they get the CBC sympathy? But let me read some more from this weird CBC story. Let me read. The Vancouver Church, which assisted with the private refugee sponsorship of the man accused of killing 13-year-old Marissa Shen, will cooperate with police as their investigation into Ibrahim Ali continues. St. Andrew's Wesley United Church lead minister Dan Chambers issued a brief statement Tuesday in response to questions about Ali, a Syrian national who came to Canada with other members of his family in March 2017. Okay, dumb question here. Uh, why was a Vancouver Christian church sponsoring a single military-aged Muslim man to come over. I was in Iraq last year myself, and there are thousands of Christians living in refugee camps. Now, they're not United Nations refugee camps because the Muslims in there kill Christians in the UN refugee camps, but these special Christians-only refugee camps, there's some Yazidis in there too, um, they have to go to these special camps because they're being ethnically cleansed by ISIS terrorists. Why didn't the Christian church in Canada take a Christian refugee? They're being targeted for genocide by ISIS. Why, why didn't they take a Muslim refugee who wasn't actually in Syria, wasn't actually a refugee, wasn't actually in danger? And more to the point, I mean, if a, if a Muslim country wanted to take him, well, he, he could have stayed in the region. Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, where, where he actually was. There's something broken with modern Christian churches that won't lift a finger to help their own brethren, the target of Muslim genocide against Christians, but they'll, they'll take their own church money to bring over a single military-aged Muslim migrant who then allegedly kills a Chinese girl who herself was probably Christian. This is so weird. But let me read some more. They're, they're talking about some BC leftists from super hip Bowen Island. And they, they say this in the CBC. They also partnered with St. Andrew's Wesley, which has a refugee task force as part of its commitment to justice and social action. In March 2017, their efforts came to fruition with the arrival of Ali and two of his brothers, one of whom was accompanied by his wife and three young children. Okay, so there's one family there, but, but it wasn't Ali who was single, and there's another single male Muslim migrant from Syria who just tagged along because he's a, he's a brother. Just how many people are there that broke Trudeau's promise of no single men? 
And, and, and what's that brother up to? Okay, here's some more from the CBC story. The Facebook page that once celebrated the sponsorship project is no longer available, and church members were asked to refrain from speaking to the media. Questions have been raised on social media about the screening process for privately sponsored refugees. I love that touch. Questions have been raised on social media. That's the CBC's way of saying, huh, we're not allowed to ask questions, and we certainly wouldn't ask tough questions. I mean, we're part of Trudeau's state broadcaster. Same thing at Burnaby Now. Change that mean headline that was too truthy. Delete the comments to it. Only the deplorable people, only the bad people on social media or at the Rebel would dare to ask, why are we doing this to, to ourselves as a, a country who is on guard for us? from Syria. Anyways, after that allusion to other questions that the CBC itself doesn't have the courage to ask, uh, they quote a Muslim immigration lawyer because he'll tell us what the hard cold facts here are. No bias here. Immigration lawyer Zul Suleiman told the CBC's early edition, the screening process is very thorough. You gotta believe me, guys. It's very unusual for someone with a significant criminal record to enter Canada as an immigrant, he said. There are very robust checks in place to keep an eye on this dimension of all immigrants who come here to be permanent residents. Suleiman, like police, warned against people using an unpredictable individual tragedy, tragedy, that word again, to tarnish a community whose Canadian experience has generally been one of hard work and success. So he said there's very robust checks in place. Do you think that's true? Do you think we had very robust checks on Ibrahim Ali before he was scooped up and brought over here? Remember, 50,000 Syrians were jammed through immigration in, what, a couple months? How robust could those checks have been? How many Canadian immigration staff even speak Arabic? How many of these so-called refugees even had ID? I don't believe it. Trudeau CBC is convinced, though. I don't think anyone else is. As usual, if we want accurate news about something controversial in Canada, whether it's about how poorly the NAFTA negotiations are going or about Trudeau groping that journalist in BC a few years back or, I don't know, how disastrous the India trip was, we have to go to foreign media. So let me close by showing you what the South China Morning Post says. They're a very reputable newspaper based in Hong Kong. Uh, they've been there for decades, long before China took Hong Kong over. It's like the Wall Street Journal of Hong Kong, really. And they have a reporter in Vancouver, it won't surprise you to learn. So they're actually a very quality newspaper, and they don't share the CBC's pro-Trudeau obsessions. So here's their headline from the South China Morning Post. Syrian refugee Ibrahim Ali is charged with murder of Vancouver schoolgirl Marissa Shen, 13, a case that stunned Canada. Yeah, isn't that the truth, eh? And I have to read it in a Chinese newspaper. Here's their subheadline. Police say Ibrahim Ali, 28, arrived in Canada just three months before Shen was found dead in a Burnaby Park in July 2017. Now, can I read a bit more? Just a little more. Canadian police have arrested a Syrian refugee and charged him with the killing of Marissa Shen, 13, whose death horrified Vancouver when her body was found in a local park 14 months ago. Now just scroll through the story a bit. It's very detailed. It's very long. It quotes Marissa Shen's family. It gives detail about her whereabouts hour by hour before her death that police put together. It's meticulous. There's a map of the park. This is far better journalism about Canada than you get at the CBC. It's good reporting. 
And look what they reported the police boss from Vancouver saying. Get a load of this. Ibrahim Ali, 28, is accused of first-degree murder. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team announced on Monday. Superintendent Donna Richardson, the officer in charge of IHIT, called for the public to remain calm <clears throat> and not make generalizations about the revelation that Ali was a refugee. Quote, by and large, our refugees that come to the country are hardworking citizens who are very happy to be in Canada. I hope that we look at this incident for what it is, a one-off situation, she said at a press conference on Monday. Now, hang on a second. So he's a hardworking citizen? These Syrian sort of hardworking citizens? Well, actually, actually they're, they're, they're not citizens. When you come to Canada as a refugee, you're, you're not granted citizenship. You're a permanent resident. You can later on apply for citizenship, but you're not a citizen. Ibrahim Ali was not a citizen. He allegedly committed this murder three months after he got here. Citizen sounds great, though. Sounds like a taxpayer. Sounds like a contributing member of society who follows our rules and lives up to our culture. Ali was not a citizen. Why would the police lie? Hard-working citizens, no less. Do we know if that's true? Do we know if Ibrahim Ali was hard-working? You know, even, even the CBC acknowledges that Syrians who came here from Trudeau, they, they just don't work at all. They don't speak English or French. They don't even have a high school equivalent on average. They have no job schools skills. 90% of Justin Trudeau's Syrian migrants are unemployed. 90% are unemployed. And according to other government statistics, even five years after all refugees come to Canada, half of them are still on welfare. And that's not even talking about the Syrians. Why would the police lie? They're not citizens, they're not hardworking. And since when are police experts on economics and jobs and what we should feel or not? These Syrian refugees aren't really from Syria. They're from Lebanon, from Turkey, from Jordan. They're not really refugees that were safe in those countries, Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan. Many of them don't really wanna be here especially since the civil war in Syria is pretty much over. Look at all these stories. Since Trump and Putin crushed ISIS, tens of thousands of Syrian refugees are going home. Going home. I wish Ibrahim Ali went home 17 months ago before he allegedly committed the murder. I wish both Ibrahim Ali's went home. I wish all the other Syrian migrants committing crimes or being accused of crimes, I wish they just went home now. You know that thug who came to New Brunswick was the star of an Australian documentary, such a hero. He was later convicted of beating his wife for half an hour with a hockey stick, remember him? He said he didn't know beating your wife with a hockey stick wasn't allowed in Canada. That's a nice Canadian touch, eh? Beat your wife with a hockey stick, so Canadian. Hey, good news. It's safe for him to go back to Syria now. 95% of Syria is under government control now. ISIS is on the run. Hey, um, Ibrahim, your, your country needs you. You need to rebuild it. All you young military-age single Muslim men who should not have come here, your country needs you to join the army or the militia to guard against ISIS returning. Maybe you can find a nice Syrian girl and get married and you can live in your customary ways and hopefully not beat too many women with hockey sticks, but do it over there. The war is over. Go home. You're not a refugee now. The war is over.
And to my fellow Canadians, just a tip. If you want to know what's really happening in Canada, you can't trust the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or any newspaper like Burnaby Now. You can trust the rebel, I think. And in this case, may I recommend the South China Morning Post? It's based in Hong Kong, which is now part of Communist China. Yeah, but you'll get a more accurate, honest, independent report from men than from our own media party. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, one of the interesting things about running an internet-based TV station is that you get lots of statistics and analytics on the different shows. And our next guest is by far our most popular guest for two months running. And I think it's because he's the only person in Canada telling the other side of the story on Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland's disastrous NAFTA negotiations. I'm talking, of course, about my friend Manny Montenegrino, who is a former lawyer to Stephen Harper, and he's with Think Sharp. Manny, great to welcome you back to the program. Nice to have you again. Thank you for having me, Ezra. Um, I want to start off by showing you a stunning video. We got a lot to talk about, about NAFTA, but I want to show you a clip, and I know you've seen this. Christia Freeland, our foreign minister, flew back from NAFTA negotiations to attend a feminist conference and to speak on a panel called Taking on the Tyrant. And I want to play a video clip for you from that panel. Uh, it takes three full minutes, Manny, but I think you've got to see it to believe it. Can I play that clip? And then we'll come back and talk about that clip and then we'll, sure. we'll talk about the NAFTA negotiations. Okay, so right. let me just set it up for one more second. This is in Toronto. This is at a feminist conference hosted by Heather Reisman, who's a, a feminist uh, entrepreneur in Canada. This video clip was the introduction to the panel. The panel was called Taking on the Tyrant, and Christia Freeland was one of the two star guests. Without further ado, let me show you the event Christia Freeland spoke at. There's a name for Viktor Orban's system of government. He calls it illiberal democracy. It's basically the primacy of populist nationalism over individual freedoms. On the campaign trail, Italy's new interior minister used hardline rhetoric to fire up the voters. Fake, fake, disgusting news. This was a direct act by the Russian state against our country.
She's loved. We love her, right? We love her. That was wonderful. Did you bask in that moment? That's lovely. Um, Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, my name is Christy Freeland. Uh, and I'm also the Member of Parliament for University Rosedale. Uh, so we are now in my riding. And isn't it a great riding? And yeah. <laughs> we are on the traditional lands of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Et au fin, c'est un très grand plaisir d'être ici avec vous, uh, surtout avec les femmes canadiennes. Uh, et l'appui, uh, votre appui est très, très important pour moi. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> well, it, it could go on, but it gets only worse. Manny Monomagino, um, that was a Trump bashing video. And I, I don't know if she would have seen the whole video uh, before she got to the event, but she would have known the event was called Taking on the Tyrant. She would have been briefed about what the panel would require from her because she was one of only two guests <coughs> there. And even after she saw the video, and let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say she didn't know it was going to be a vicious attack on Donald Trump as some fascist, she applauded it, she basked in it, and she said, yeah, this is my moment. And then she did a little virtue signaling. That's insane for anyone in uh Canadian cabinet, but yeah. for someone who's doing a NAFTA negotiation, Manny, what do you make of that? Well, it just supports my premise. Um, I've been saying, as you know, for months and perhaps almost a year, no, I have tweeted it a year ago, that that is its main purpose. The purpose of this government is to win the next election, and they see the best way to do it is to create a a battle between Trump and this government and to prove that Canadians will now vote for this government. And this is just more evidence. It's alarming. I mean, you wouldn't see Mexico, who worked very hard uh, some 20, 30 days in a row to craft a deal, to agree to deal. They didn't break up and go and do these videos that are insulting to the, uh, the their, their negotiating partner, their, their biggest trade partner. So it's just more evidence. And, and I think, Ezra, if you see it from that point of view, it's very clear that the purpose is to create this, what I'll call a, a division between Canada and America, or Trump more particularly, and this prime minister. And that's why it works. And that's why there was great applause. And, uh, but it's not about trade, because if it was about trade, any reasonable person would not have done or gone to that in the middle of a NAFTA negotiation. So it just supports my premise. And it uh, it's alarming. I, I mean, I was very saddened when I saw that. I couldn't believe it. But it supports my premise. And there's more. Yeah. You know, when you're a senior cabinet minister, I mean, foreign minister is a very senior position. You have a lot of staff. You have people called advanced people. They would go to the event in advance. They would check out who's the introducer. They would check where's the seat, where's the glass of water, like down to every detail. And they would have known absolutely the nature of the event. They probably absolutely. would have seen that video. But let's just say for the benefit of the doubt, they didn't. 
She knew she was going to an anti-Trump event, but Manny, what gets me is it wasn't a substantive disagreement with Trump. It wasn't, we're gonna defend this industry, or it wasn't even right. saying we want chapter 19, the dispute resolution mechanism, or we want the dairy cartel. You can agree or disagree with that, but that's substantive. This was pure Trump derangement, pure demonizing Trump. It was all personal, and, and that's what's so alarming here. Mexico surely has substantive differences with Trump, but they're not twisting a knife in him in the middle of a negotiation. Well, they want they want a deal. I mean, if before this video came out, Ezra, there were uh, more alarming signs that, that supports my premise that really this government does not want a, a NAFTA deal. What this government does want is to create a, a, a division, a Trump hate narrative to get Trump hate votes in Canada. And, and it's that simple. I mean, let's go. You might recall there were two points that were that were not negotiable six months ago, four or five months ago. The prime minister stood up and said, uh, these are not negotiable. Uh, we uh, we will not have an after deal. And they were the five year sunset clause mm -hmm. and no deal without Mexico. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the president of the United States offered a bilateral deal almost a year ago. Uh, and, and they said, absolutely not. We will not do a deal without Mexico and we will not have this five year sunset clause where well, those are both gone. Mm -hmm. Those were the only impediments to a deal. Now they're gone. And what are they substituted with? They substituted with two new uh, that we've never heard of, the cultural. Now we're here defending cultural issues. That's now the line in the sand. That's the red line. Uh, and that wasn't said a year ago. So it's disingenuous to bring it up now. As well, as you mentioned, chapter 19. Chapter 19 is a dispute resolution system that's in NAFTA. And it hasn't been used for the last 10 years or so. It basically is a clause that really has no useful effect anymore. What they want to do is they simply, the, the negotiators want to move it from a a, 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 a panel uh, where people select who's on the panel to the courts. Now, most people trust and rely on the courts. And, and what has our prime minister said about chapter 19? And you might recall this, and it's in my my, my 59th tweet, if you will, because now I have a, a series of tweet of evidence. But the prime minister said, we know we have a president that doesn't always follow the rules. And that's why he's not supportive of chapter 19 changes. Now, Ezra, no one in the media, no one, no lawyer, no, no one has asked, what do you mean by that, Mr. Prime Minister? We know we have a president that doesn't follow the rules. Well, Chapter 19 is a resolution that goes to the courts. No president, not this president or any president, could pick up the phone and talk to a judge. Mm -hmm. It is insulting to the, to the judiciary of America or Canada. It's insulting to this president, and it's insulting to future president. Mm -hmm. And when, when, when uh, President Trump is gone and there's a new president, no president will pick up the phone and start interfering with a court on a, on a uh, uh, dispute mechanism under Chapter 19. That tells me that there is really, it's insincere, and no lawyer has even questioned it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, by nature, whenever you're negotiating with someone, you have a difference of opinion. Um, you know, I think it was Shimon Peres, the late Israeli leader, who said, you make peace with your enemies. That's the most dramatic example of that. If you're ever in a negotiation, it's with someone you have a disagreement with, fine, fine. 
but you have to have some good faith. And what, what I find here is you've just raised some excellent points that maybe substantively Canada is not even negotiating in good faith. If we're coming up with last minute objections that we, our negotiators haven't even mentioned before, but I think you don't even need to, you know, uh, detect bad faith in the substance when you see the, I, I can't even, I don't even know how to describe what Christia Freeland was doing there. It was like she was leading a rally for the Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing of the Democrats. Well, and, and the weird virtue signaling, the, the selfie style, let me say something in English and French, let me boast about my writing, let me give a shout out to Aboriginal uh, issues. It, it was a, a level of insincerity and virtue signaling. I, I just don't even understand how that can be accepted in the, in the first rank of international relations. Manny, well, I, I think you're right, yeah. I think we're doomed. Uh, well, I mean, if you look at it, if you start with the premise, do they want a NAFTA deal? Now, as, as you know, businesses set up companies every month, every day, mm -hmm. and, and uncertainty tells businesses where to go. Canada has been under a, a cloud of uncertainty. The NAFTA deal is not done. Mexico understood this. That's why they wanted the deal quickly. In case this new business wants to set up in Mexico, we are on board, come here. But now, as we delay... There are billions of dollars that are not invested in Canada. We've had that pipeline mm -hmm. uh, fiasco that basically says to the world, if you're in oil and pipelines, don't come to Canada. Now with NAFTA, if you're setting up any business, well, we're not sure we're going to do this deal. We're going to continue to to uh, you know, poke the, the, the president and God knows how long that will take. So they'll set up. These are billions of dollars in jobs that are not seen today, but will be seen in the future lost to Canada. Mm -hmm. So it is clearly intentional in my I mean, I continue to find evidence. And as you say, Ezra, that little speech in Toronto by the foreign minister who's negotiating this trade deal is, 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 is the last piece of evidence you ever need to know that this government really doesn't have. Its, its primary goal is not NAFTA. Its primary goal is to win the next election, and it's to win it by getting Trump hate votes. Yeah. And if that means NAFTA fails or if that means NAFTA gets delayed and the economy suffers, it really doesn't matter. I mean, the prime minister is already, as, as you may have seen, the prime minister is already warned that there may be potential uh, disastrous effect to the auto sector, yeah. temporary. He's already warned that. Why, now, why would a prime minister warn that? That is something that you, you would, could not possibly have happen. But he's already warned it, and he's, it's already been you know, publicized. Yeah. Well, that's what I am having trouble coming to terms with. And I remember when you first put your thesis to me a few weeks ago that Trudeau wants this to fail, and Trump wants it to fail so Trump can pull those factories from southern Ontario, and I think there's a, a small car industry in Quebec too, pull those into battleground states like Ohio and Michigan and maybe Pennsylvania and Indiana, because Trump would win. He'd bring the jobs home, the factories home. He doesn't care about votes in Ontario and Quebec, and Trudeau would win in that he could right. get all the anti-Trump. So in a weird way, they both win, but here's what I don't get about this, and, and answer me this if you can. You talked about the pipelines that won't get built. Those are jobs that don't exist now that we won't get, and that's a crying shame, but, but we won't feel it as much as a job that does exist that's taken away. So let's say we've given up thousands of jobs in pipelines that will never be built, 
and oil sands projects that will never be built. It's, we won't sense that loss because it didn't exist to begin with. Whereas if you actually shut down an existing factory, there will be real people who really do lose their jobs and it will be tangible and visible and painful to families. How can Trudeau think that that enormous body blow to Ontario and partially to Quebec of shutting down those factories won't be a disaster economically and also politically? Is, is running against Trump really a stronger asset than creating 100,000, 160,000 unemployed new families? Well, I can only conclude that their, their answer, the Liberals' answer, is yes, or we wouldn't be here at the brink of a disaster. Mm. They, it may only be two or three ridings, but how many more votes that are across Canada, and, and it's 24-7 media on, on everything that Trump's done wrong, and it's now starting to happen with Ford. It's just, it's amazing. But so, so yes, it might affect one or two ridings, but the number of people that will blame that it will blame Trump, it would be, we will all kind of be on that side. So they've done the metrics. And, and yes, 100,000 jobs, a few ridings is not as big as a big picture. That's my estimation. I haven't found any evidence hmm. to disprove what my theory is. And I'm, I'm not, listen, every day I wake up, hmm. I hope that I will. I'd hope that I'd find it. But when the prime minister just one or two days ago said, to, said in, in getting the, the people ready, saying, be careful, there may be a, 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 a impact, a disruption to the auto sector. That's already saying, hey, we like where we're going and we don't mind if Trump does this. Hmm. You know, <clears throat> part of me thinks, well, maybe this is brinksmanship. Maybe this is banter. This is people taking positions uh, in a negotiation, and it's just high drama, but it'll all be resolved. But I want to believe that, but I I don't sense that, and I and I I mean I don't understand why Christia Freeland and I understand that Gerald Butts, the principal secretary to Trudeau, and Katie Telford, the chief of staff to Trudeau, they were down in Washington too, but they're not professional negotiators. They're they're political activists, they're speechwriters, they're they're political managers. They have talents, that's for sure. But I, I don't understand why we don't have professional negotiators doing the negotiation. Well, you know, well, we have negotiators that are negotiating for what they want. I mean, you, you keep going back to the point that there are professional negotiators and they're all doing the NAFTA deal. We probably, Canada probably has some great negotiators, but they're being, being given the marching orders from the government. And, and you know, so so and their premise or their Hope is something else. So, so it is happening as it's played out. I mean, Ezra, you, you started with the clip, and I will go with that. Under no circumstance would anyone ever attend a a a a a, a forum that says Trump is a tyrant in the last days of a NAFTA deal, especially, I mean, we're not even talking about a, an MP. Uh, we're not talking about, uh, we had an MP that was removed uh, uh, by uh, by the Liberal government, a uh, cabinet minister, that when she spoke poorly against George Bush, she was removed. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a sensitivity that we once have. That's not the case. We have the most senior cabinet minister who is in the last days of negotiating, uh, going to this seminar, uh, uh, calling Trump a tyrant, 
that has to tell Canadians a lot. It ha- speaks great volumes, but NAFTA is secondary to another cause, and the other cause is political. Plain and simple. And I would love anyone to give me any evidence that I'm wrong because it is I, I everywhere I go and and I, as you know Ezra I've, I now have a tweet thread on that's up to about 60 tweets mm-hmm. that, that that simply point to facts and this last one is just a, another one that 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 leads me to the conclusion yeah. that the primary goal is not NAFTA. Manny, you've been very generous with your time and we spent a few minutes watching that clip. Uh, I have just one last question for you because I I just want to know your thoughts on it. If one day comes when Trump announces that 20% tariff on our autos, and he's, he said that would likely be the figure, what kind of domino effect would that have on our dollar, on our, oh. uh, on our uh, interest rates, on consumer confidence? What would happen the day he announces those tariffs? You know, Ezra, I have no idea what would happen to the stock market, our dollar. Uh, it would be devastating. But, but uh, you know, it is, uh, it is uh, I, you know, we, the fact that we're this close and we're only fighting for Chapter 19 and culture. And if you look at the issue of culture in Canada, I mean, you turn on CBC uh, and catch your news in the first 50% of it is American. It's always American. I mean, so so to sit there and say that we are going to come to the brink of disaster, our stock market, our jobs, our auto industry, for Chapter 19, where a judge gets to decide a dispute, uh, where liberals normally want judges to decide disputes, they're very happy about that. Uh, and the issue of culture, it doesn't make sense to me at all. Well, Manny, as usual, uh, you leave me more informed, but less happy. Yeah, well, I, I, I listen. I'm not a happy guy. I, I am. Uh, I love this country. I have fought for this country, as you know, Ezra, for almost 30 years. I've taken a lot of risks for this country, and I am a very, very unhappy guy. Uh, the last video that you that you started this broadcast with uh, just deepened my sadness. Yeah. Well, Manny, I'm glad you're fighting uh, for Canada by speaking the truth to our government. And I I think the fact that your videos are so popular is a reflection of the fact people just can't find thoughtful criticism elsewhere in the the media. So I thank you for being here today. And I hope we can keep in touch with you in the weeks ahead until this uh, issue is resolved. All right, take care, my friend. Thanks very much. That's Manny Montenegrino, a former lawyer to Stephen Harper and the CEO of Think Sharp. Stay with us, more ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about the anniversary of 9-11, how we're forgetting all the lessons learned that day. Space Moose writes, 17 years later and we are afraid of being called Islamophobic. Isn't that the truth? I mean, look, look at what I talked about earlier in the show. Burnaby now changed the headline to delete reference to Syrian migrants. Why? That is an interesting fact. Why so afraid? Why did the police, instead of showing affection and care for the Chinese community, why are they talking about hardworking Syrian citizens who aren't citizens? And by the way, 90% of them are unemployed, according to the government. Why, why is the police not even granting some comfort to the murdered family? Why are they talking about the alleged murderer's community? Yeah, it's, it's worse than you think. Paul writes, 
9-11 was used as an excuse for government to take away rights and freedoms of their people for safety reasons. Since then, every terrorist attack has been used to undermine our rights and freedoms bit by bit. Oh, there is a lot of truth here. I have a question for you. I mean, I fly too much. It's part of my job. But I think many Canadians fly at least a few times a year. Um, the more you fly, the more the security theater grates on you. The more you start to resent being groped. You start to resent having to take off your belt and your shoes and things of that sort and being exposed to whatever the radiation is and the long lines and the dehumanization and being treated like cattle. I, I think if you travel once a year, it's probably not that bad. Oh, they're groping me. It's uh, different. You travel once a month, it's, a, it's more odious. You travel once a week, you start to hate it. Can I ask you a question about all that groping? In the 17 years since 9-11, has it ever caught a terrorist? I don't think so. I don't think so. That's a perfect example. And we've been conditioned, we've become obedient to accept these little infringements in the name of security. It's not security, that's security theater. Don writes, speak for others, Ezra, if you wish, but not for me. I have forgotten nothing. If anything, since 9-11, I have learned much more about the religion of pieces and can forget even less. Well, of course, Don, that's what I'm talking about. When I say we have forgotten, I'm not saying me. I think I'm quite woke on the subject and you too. And I think that there are others who care a lot. But I think the establishment, or as Daniel Pipe says, the 5P professionals, the press, the politicians, the police, the prosecutors, the professors, and sometimes he adds in a few more Ps, I think they've forgotten. Or, no, they haven't forgotten. They say they've forgotten. They're terrified, just like you and I, but they are more terrified of being called Islamophobic. On my interview with ousted Professor Rick Maida, Harold writes, regarding outspoken Professor Rick Maida, he's just another victim of progressive fascism. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I had never talked to him before, and he doesn't have quite the same forceful personality as Jordan Peterson. And so I, I think part of Jordan Peterson's success was that he had been thinking about these kind of fights for years. And he had also developed some amateur skills in YouTube and social media. So I think he was sort of like a boxer who had been training. Little did he know. So when the big fight came, he was ready. Um, he had built up fans. He had, he had a bit of a cult following. Um, and he had that great moment of courage, as you, I don't know if you remember, when, when, he, when there was a denunciation of him by these radical leftist students, and he walked out there and he said, I know what happened in communist China, and he sort of, he had this great moment. I sense with Rick Mehta is that he may have similar claims, uh, or even stronger claims, than Jordan Peterson did, but I sense that he is not ready for the primetime fight that uh, Jordan Peterson was, and I'm worried he will be devoured. I hope he gets a good lawyer, and I hope they fight back strategically, but as you heard him say in our interview yesterday, he still didn't have a lawyer, and you need one if that's the field you're gonna fight in. Well, that's the show for today. By the way, on YouTube today, we uploaded a 90-minute interview I did with Tommy Robinson. I don't know if you remember, I was out of town a week or so ago. I went to London just for the day to interview Tommy. And I know some folks here, why are you always talking about Tommy? Tommy this, Tommy that. Well, because I see him as a canary in the coal mine. What happens in the United Kingdom today will happen in Canada in five years and in the United States in 10 years. And um, so there's lessons there. It's also a very interesting story, what he went through in prison 
how he was treated, how he was abused in prison in a way that any other prisoner would have a human rights case immediately. In a way, as, he, as we, you know, we talked about it, if he was starved for a week, not a morsel of food, uh, he lost 40 pounds in prison over two months, you wouldn't treat a dog that way. You wouldn't keep a dog in a small cage, no exercise, letting him out for only half an hour to be screamed at. You wouldn't treat a dog that way, but he was treated that way. If you haven't seen it yet, you can find it elsewhere on our website, various places, our YouTube page. I think we have it on Zype for our premium members, and you can find it just on the rebel.media. So I encourage you to watch that. I mean, uh, you know, pour yourself a drink of coffee or whatever, because it's a 90-minute it's video. Um, and there's actually a longer two-hour version if you want every last bit that we, we cut out for the shorter version. But that's my interview with Tommy. Um, I think a lot of people will find it shocking. I've heard these stories along the way, and I've communicated with Tommy, obviously, a fair bit in the last month. So I'm no longer shocked by them, or I'm still shocked. I'm no longer surprised by them. I think you'll find them both. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.